This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and here's your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hello. So, what are we talking about tonight, Puka? We are diving into darkness by opening up the Shadow Court. Uh, Yeah, so Shadow Court. It's another first edition book in some order, printed in Canada. uh, Written by Brian Campbell, Jackie... Seda Nikki Ria, developed by Ian Lemke, edited by Roni Radner. Um, Not sure, but I do want to point out that there is a heraldry consultant on this book, which I love that that's a thing. Yes. And then Richard Thomas did some of the heraldry, it looks like. Yes. I'm assuming it's the Unseelie House Blazons. That would make sense. It does make me think, I mean, I know that when we talked with Ian Lemke several episodes ago, listeners, go back and listen to episode four for our interview with Ian Lemke. I wonder if this is kind of at the point where Jackie and Nikki kind of started taking on more more of the reins of Changeling, because I think from this point forward, they seem to be involved in pretty much every book that came out, if, if memory mm-hmm. serves. And I know Ian had said that at some point in second edition, they basically became developers. But yeah, so we have, they're always very good about dedications and thanks. They always seem very heartfelt, so... And there are actual playtesters for this book, which I'd say is kind of a rarity outside of a core book. But given how densely packed this book is with stuff. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I did not remember just as it already, but like how much system, new system there is in here. Oh, yeah. A lot of it's, at least in some form, stayed through in the core books, like the following two core books. So. Yeah, you could honestly almost, you could run an entire game using just mechanics from the core book, just the basic rule set, and then this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is incredibly rich and self-contained. So be a dark game, but yes. Absolutely. But it's in the same way that vampire players want to run Sabbat games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess this is like a Sabbat player's guide equivalent. It's like a Sabbat player's guide and a Sabbat storyteller's guide and Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand all rolled into one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So... Or maybe just Guide to the Sabbat if we go with the revised version. And I do like, I just want to point out the sort of palette-swapped border that we have where the glass icons are kind of inverted from their colors and it's purple knotwork instead of yellow. And it's the little touches like that, which I find really fun. Yeah. Somehow that green that they also use a lot is just feeling... I don't know. It seems like it should be hokey, but everything works color palette wise. Well, it's the villain colors, isn't it? Like it's the Joker colors or like purple and green are always villain colors in media. Anyway, I would also say the introduction sort of spells that out in the sense that they call it, where is it? Uh, An alternative approach to playing Changeling, a version of the game for people who tire of sweetness and light, a saga for those who crave the night. So for anyone who says Changeling isn't dark enough, Changeling is too goofy. This book is for you. Perhaps. Yes. One thing that I did find a little bit confusing, and this is sort of an artifact in the Sabbat as well for Vampire, is you have... So it's a book about the Unseelie Court, but then also the Shadow Court. 
And in the same way that Vampire has the Sabbat with the Black Hand kind of embedded in it, but not the true Black Hand, a separate Black Hand, but it's all within the Sabbat. It's like this very convoluted intrigues within intrigues kind of setup. So the book is called The Shadow Court. It's about the Unseelie Court and the Shadow Court that lies within it and kind of pulls the strings and manipulates them from within, etc. Uh, it's also several other shadow courts within that other shadow court too. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of the times it doesn't, it's kind of immaterial. A lot of what is laid out in this book applies to any changeling who is on the, I guess, darker side of things. But it does get a little bit confusing at points where it's unclear which court we're actually talking about, how much of this extends to the entirety of the Unseelie. But once you put that aside, or once you decide, oh, you know, I'll use however much I want to in my game, which is probably the right move to do in the first place, then there is ample material to draw from in this book. Okay. Yeah, there's a few little points that stuck out for me. I like, they sort of have a line that I think is a big through line through the Shadow Court, and even through editions, is just as beautiful dreams have been known to fade and die, any changeling can, through circumstance, intrigue, or even free will, succumb to the nightmare that awaits within the dreaming. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty good, uh, at least encompassing the confusing contrast or sameness of banality and dark glamour. Not that it has uses the word dark glamour here, but it's a concept that comes up later in changeling. I think the phrase dark glamour does actually appear in this book at some point. I'm trying to remember where. I think it's I think it's in chapter three somewhere. But yeah, and it, the implication here is that no changeling is ever going to be 100% one court or the other. They're always going mm-hmm. to kind of be caught in between their silly side and their unsealy side. Yep. And I like that. I like that that reinforces the theme of balance and, you know, struggling to find solid footing. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has an interesting little throwaway line that I don't think has been followed up anywhere else saying that uh, there are Seelie members of the Shadow Court, just not as common as the Unseelie members. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure what to make of that. <laughs> I suppose it's... Um, it's like, how would they I, know, really? But I guess it could be that they're they're sort of like deep cover sleeper agents or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, it's like someone can change courts, right? You could still be in For the sure. Shadow Court and change courts, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so we get into a story here uh, called Rebirth. And it's describing, it's a lot of talking. Uh, you have <laughs> two brothers of House Elinid, Ambergin and Darkeen. I think it's Aubergin, but it looks like Aubergine. Mm-hmm. So I'm just picturing a, an enormous sentient eggplant. Mm. The implications that were not present, although if it's the purple. Uh, and then Darkeen, that name felt a bit on the nose. Mm. And Ambergin's a Seelie ruler. And then his brother Darkeen was banished. I can't remember what the actual title of the... He's a baron. He's a baron. Okay. He's an Elvened baron. Okay. So yeah, so Dark Aiden, his brother was banished for a year and a day. He's returned. They're on sowing. He's being accused of nasty stuff. He invokes a rite of fior. And then it just... Ambergen like, says, okay, fine. You, ha- you have to be in charge until sunrise. This is like just around sunset going into sowing. And then puts a Gisa on uh, Darkane to sort of explain details of the Shadow Court. And then it goes into some stuff they do, which, you know, trysts they have, some stuff about jumping over fire. And then Darkane starts to explain some of the details about how the Shadow Court really works. And then it fades to mists 
and comes back, but it's like Dark Ains like maybe helped his brother remember a few things. There's a lot of uh as it's put in here. They are antagonists but not opposed. They're, there's it's like an adversarial process that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things about that in the Shadow Court here too. And uh yeah. It, it made me wonder how you'd act. This, this actually comes up a lot of Samhain stuff. You, we can talk about in the Samhain chapter, but like, it just reminds me every time actually role-playing stuff. It can be a bit tricky because not everyone wants to be like, okay, let's role-play things. And then we talk about what you actually remember, or do we want to just describe a few scenes? And there's sort of a mix of that here mm. where some of the stuff described would have faded, would have been lost to the mists, but other stuff was just jumped ahead and was lost to the mist to the reader as well. So, yeah. 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 In essence, what this seems like is an excuse to fold in a bunch of expository information disguised as dialogue. So yeah, they mm-hmm. they talk a lot, as you said. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. m- most of this story, I would say, is just n- not even dialogues, monologues in some cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's useful. It's helpful because this is the only in-character section that we get apart from a few quotations throughout the book so it's not like there's an entire chapter later on that's in that weird sort of semi in character semi out of character yeah there's 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 also chunk there are chunks of other chapters like that actually at least one i can think of not this long though (laughs) no not this long yeah i i don't know i think overall i liked it because it encapsulated a lot within when i compare it with something like kith book trolls which we I've just talked about where you had mm-hmm. an opening story of similar length that all it really did was serve to give background for their frailty. Mm-hmm. This on the other hand lays out like how you might run a Samhain, maybe not chronicle, but chapter of a story and mm-hmm. how nobles and commoners each engage with it. And some of the rituals involved in Samhain and some of the mechanics, we get a description of things like the Samhain mists that come in in the morning after and obscure everyone's memory. We get a number of characters that you could potentially use in a game. So like it does a lot of work through the medium of a short story. And I appreciate that. To your point about the antagonism, one of the lines, there were a couple like quotes that I pulled out that I really liked. At one point, Darkane says to his brother, I am not your enemy, I am your adversary. And I think that encapsulates the entirety of the sort of almost yin-yang relationship of Sealy and Unsealy, where one mm-hmm. really can exist without the other. They're opposed to each other, but they're not necessarily fighting against each other. Ideally, one supports the other and compliments the other. We get a few tidbits too about things like when, when they're talking about Endless Winter, Aubergine says to Darkane, you speak as if you're looking forward to it. And Darkane replies only because it's better than dreading it. And he also offers these two, I guess, unseely or maybe shadow court lessons. The first is to follow your instincts. And the second is if it scares you, do it. And that whole ethos of the shadow court, I think is summed up by those, those moments. So should we go into chapter one then? <laughs> yes, let's do chapter one. So that leads us into chapter one, Endless Winter. One of the other things about this book, there are so many epigraphs, like so many, so many epigraphs. And I'm here for it. I enjoy epigraphs. Here we have Robert Frost's Fire and Ice, which is one of my favorite poems. But it's like there are other cases where it's every other section has its own little quotation. Anyway, if you're into that, cool. It felt very first edition. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. 
So we have this sort of little almost secret history of how there used to be a lot more emphasis among the Fae on seasonality and cycles as the Fae would kind of move through their life cycle and die and reincarnate. It echoed the pattern of the seasons year after year. And then there's this discussion of uh, when the nobility fled during the shattering, the Celian Unseelie courts tried to mend their fences and reach this understanding and kind of create this almost artificial balance divorced from the patterns of the natural world that the Fae were used to. And from the perspective of the Shadow Court, they failed entirely. Yeah, there was there was one thing I found confusing in the history. What's that? Uh, it doesn't explain how the Seelie ended up in charge. Mm. It felt like maybe that, because it gets on that later, right? But yeah, it yeah. should have maybe like a paragraph or something would have been nice. Yeah. Even if it's an unreliable narrator thing. Do we have concrete information about the Seelie really being in charge during the interregnum? I mean, the nobles were basically gone. Yeah. So I, it implies it, but that might've been more just the seal. Yeah. It could be that, Oh, there wasn't, I, I thought it said there's been since the shattering, the seal had been in charge. I thought it said that later in the book. Yeah. It might, it might be more the resurgence is when the seal ended up in charge. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Cause their houses came back in force. There's an alternate timeline. Yeah changeling book it's like all mostly unseelie houses coming back and forth in the resurgence that'd be a thing so in the olden days the seelie would take power at beltane and then relinquish it at Samhain. when the unseelie would take power and then the unseelie would give it up at beltane the next year and so on and so forth and Samhain is in in the sort of celtic influenced neo-pagan calendar that changeling draws so heavily from Samhain is the new year so that's the point at which the wheel has turned essentially and this kind of, I mean, in chapter three, we'll get into this more, but the shadow court looks back to the past and looks back to a time when they were taking power more regularly because they've been shut out of power for so long. And in chapter three, we get into this more, but a lot of their ritualism is kind of structured around reawakening some of those old rhythms and cycles and patterns. And there is the note that the shadow court as a formal institution arose during the shadowing as a result of unseelie anger at the noble's departure. So maybe more seelie left than unseelie or, or something. I don't know. <laughs> I suppose because the seelie are the ones who want structure and feudalism and organization and the unseelie kind of rebel against that. And the shadow court especially rebels against that. Yeah. I do feel like it. we have questions. We could piece it together, but that's the the one little niggling thing in this part is, is I felt like maybe they could have addressed it a little bit. I, I will also say this section is the one that I kind of engaged with the least because I felt like it sort of restated the same thing several times. It gives you this historical background and social background for sort of reasons why changelings join the shadow court. Either they're exhausted with Sealy politics or just Kithane politics in general Unseelie might join the shadow court because they're disgusted by their fellow unseelie kind of just allowing the seelie to rule. And then there are nobles who have kind of fallen from grace and they just want to be decadent and awful. But I feel like we, we probably got that information several times. So. Mm -hmm. there's, there's one little bit of sort of pre-shattering history I found 
kind of neat, but I can't remember. Is it the Bright Road part? Yes. Yeah. Where uh, the Fae would, before the Shattering, before they took on the Changeling Way, the Fae still aged just slowly. And when they died, they went through the Shadowlands, basically, or the Land of the Dead. It's called the Bright Road. And then they would come back different, but they would come back, or at least in theory, sometimes come back. Uh, and that was the only way they could change courts, too. I think the Bright Road is actually supposed to be the journey itself, because they, they call it a trod that leads back from the mm -hmm. Lands of the Dead. So maybe it's a Black Path of Balor. Maybe a Bright Path of Balor. Yeah, I agree. I really like that, because it gives you information about how resurrection, not reincarnation, worked for the Fae. Mm-hmm. So, and there's also, it's also important to note that the Fae kind of come and go from the shadow court. So it's not necessarily a permanent allegiance thing. It's mm -hmm. not as much of an identity as maybe being a Seelie or Unseelie is. And I think that's also sort of implied in the opening fiction. Yeah. And there's things that reinforce that later too in the book. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the manifesto? The manifesto? Well, I'll go through the manifesto quickly if that's... So the, the seven tenets of the shadow court manifesto... First, understand the mortal world and shelter those who cannot live in it. Second, understand the supernatural world and make and break alliances as necessary. Third, harvest glamour and prepare for the approaching of endless winter. Fourth, overthrow the Seelie court and the nobility. Fifth, fulfill the ritual obligations of the year, culminating in the rituals of Samhain. Sixth, spread chaos, revolution, and anarchy. And seventh, there is no tenet number seven. All hail Discordia! It's probably my favorite one at the end there. Mm -hmm. um, I like it. Overall, you know, it's sort of the, it's a compliment to the escheat. And it's a little more practical, I would say, than we're used to. To use the business buzz speak terms that I've had to become conversant in over the year, it's full of actionable items. So I, I could think of it as the shadow court rules of acquisition, basically. Yeah, except there's only seven instead of 248. Yes. We have to start somewhere. That's true. Yeah, but it gives you, it tells you a lot about what they're about and where they want to be headed. So that leads us to chapter two. Okay. So chapter two, The Way of Shadow, is a lot more details on the Shadow Court and the Unsealing General, but really focused on the Shadow Court. Uh, starts with the pageant. And this is for, for Unsealing, it's particularly members of the Shadow Court. They view Fey Life as a pageant. It's a like a play that you're acting out. I'm surprised it wasn't just that Shakespeare quote at the beginning. Hmm. It's both they're playing and they're not taking things quite so seriously, but they're also the pageant itself is very serious because it's the story. They're living this story of the continuous rise and fall of the dreaming itself. Get some stuff about maybe mortals made up plays based on this, but I think it's a good mentality of how to play this kind of character. I play a shadow court character and it's quite a fun way to, to play a character. I think. I think the way it's being used here is this sort of like guiding metaphor for their worldview, I suppose you'd call it. And pageants to me, so like a Christmas pageant, there's these very archetypal roles that move through a very set narrative. And so this whole thing kind of struck me as an alternative to the hero's journey that we got throughout first edition. Mm -hmm. So a metaphor for Fae life. And it makes me think of these archetypes like, you know, the Fisher King or the sacred marriage with these social roles tied to ritual needs and ritual goals in the same way that you have kind of the Christmas pageant mm -hmm. cast of characters. Everyone has their role to play, 
in order to support the community in this semi-ritualistic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, they have romance and our favorite uh, courtly love. Of course. And romantic societies and legacies. Yeah, they add new romantic societies who are all about making fun of courtly love. They have new romantic legacies if you really need those. They're pretty terrible people you wouldn't want to be in a relationship with for the most part. Then it gets into honor, about unseely honor. They do have it. Yeah, but it's, I almost feel like honor might be the wrong word for what it is, but it's a... They live by codes. Yes. Codes plural because it's very individualized. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we have the uns- the winter version of the Ashit, which is kind of the cynical take on things, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. But it's, you know, things like the right of ignorance is no one believes in fairies anyway, so why bother? Although the right of rescue, for instance, is rescuing a seely noble from banality puts her in our power where she belongs. Garnering favors never hurt anyone. So it's not like opposed to the Ashit exactly, but it's definitely a different spirit behind it. Yeah. Uh, and gets into a crime and punishment of the Shadow Court. Has something called the Midnight Court, which it's one of those other things. It's like, that's kind of cool. How would I incorporate that into a game without it being weird? Because it's like a secret court. If your characters aren't pulled into it, you won't know about it. And if you are pulled into it, you're kind of screwed. So talks about the Shadow Court view of the Forsworn. Those are our Oathbreakers. If you broke an oath that pissed off a particular Shadow Court member or you broke an oath to the Shadow Court, that goes badly for you. But it's there's a kind of oath-breaking in general in the Shadow Courts, more respected, seeing someone who sets you apart. I don't know about respected, but at least tolerated. <laughs> I'd say it's it's respected in the... It's respected if you break an oath to the Sealy. Yes. But it's also sure. like, ooh, you broke an oath. You're, you're kind of cool. Maybe. Yeah. If it, again, if it's not broke an oath that the person actually cares about, the other person cares about. It seems like they care more about intention behind the oath rather than holding mm-hmm. to the words itself as well. Oh yeah, bring, the, the initial story as well here talks a lot about uh, breaking the oath, like the word of the oath to uphold mm-hmm. the spirit. Yeah. We get political impulses. So these are the, not the group secret societies, but it's like almost like a new, it's like a stance that you could take within the shadow court and some of them can even you can have more than one so you have the purists this mid's name traditionalists what they want to bring is they're the ones who want to bring the shadow court into either for the next 600 years or some of them maybe just want to bring it back to half the year there's the reputator that wants to overthrow the entire seely governance structure and noble structure anarchists which are broken up into kind of like real anarchists and kind of like <laughs> stereotypes about punk anarchists i guess i'd put it or you know the anarchists nihilists yeah the the burn it all down anarchists are one of them too anarchists and nihilists yeah ritualists who are all about the spiritual aspects of unseelie and shadow court and all that kind of thing and it says you can belong to that well well belonging to other groups the modernists which are this is actually share a name with the seelie political impulse and they believe that you know they just need to get up with the modern world they're kind of a, with the reputator and the modernist. There seems like some overlap there too. Uh, then we get into Parliament of Dreams. It says there are some unseely nobles in the Parliament of Dreams. Some of them are Shadow Court. The greatest value of the Shadow Court are one that everyone thinks are seely. And then we get into secret societies. And this is where it really gets convoluted within the Shadow Court. So you have the Knights of the Cold Watch, which are actually opposed. Well, they're look working at looking out for the Fomorians. Certain formats, the Thalane and other dark 
things returning. Some of them want to fight it. Some of them want to make use of them. But either way, they're concerned by them. Glowing Eye, which is basically just a House Baylor conspiracy. Pilgrims of the Bright Row, which are all about like death-focused and learning about the wraiths and the underworld and that type of thing. The Children's Crusade, which are made up largely of childling redcaps or young wilders. And it's all about assassinating Sealy nobility. So that's good, clean fun. Mm. And then they bring up Cat's Cradle, which has been mentioned before, which officially is opposed to the Shadow Court and unofficially has a lot of Shadow Court members and kind of the balance goals of the Shadow Court they're kind of aligned with. Those aspects of the Shadow Court that just want to bring balance as opposed to tear it all down or whatnot. Yeah, we got a Pinky in the Brain quote, which since it's in this first edition book makes me feel old. We get Then we get some Lucas the Wanderer leaving notes for someone about things just as an excuse to bring in unreliable narrator. And there's sort of their opinion on the Sealy Court, Lost Ones, Nunehi, Minahune, etc. But this unreliable narrator thinks that the Fomoria and the Fomorians are the same. Yes, you do. This is, this is, incidentally, Lucas the Wanderer is the issue in the initial short story. And this is sort of his note before he goes to the freehold of Owen. So was he established a shadow court beforehand? It's hinted because when Darkane leaves, he says like, oh, you know, I've, I've left my agent or whatever to, to keep things to keep things mm-hmm. going in my absence or whatever. So. Well, this one, yeah, does it, yeah. I meant beforehand, was it hinted? But No, it was, it, I mean, it's hinted in the short story. Okay, yeah. At the start. Uh, so it's like opinions on also, you know, talks about the Thalane, which come up later. Prodigals. So the children of Lilith for vampires, other parts of the book go, people going, I don't think vampires were actually fae at all. And then some people do think that talks about the Ravnos and throws in a slur. Yeah, we kind of get deep cuts for the the prodigals here. I mean, it gets yeah. very detailed. So yeah, it's a lot of Savat focused. And then changing folk, which are like, this is their bonds to the animal world that make the Pukos look like stuffed animals. They've always sort of gone down on those being, uh, always being prodigals. As in former Fae. So we have like, they equally get along with the Fianna. They get along, eh, it's not so well with the Shadow Lords, but they get along with the Black Spiral Dancers and the Fianna just as well as each other, according to the Shadow Court. And talks about, uh, it says, unlikely the Bonar result in their smelling of the worm on one week and feeling our wild the next. So Gross. talk about how, how, how confusing. <laughs> I mean, because of the Bonar, but they are confusing to trying to fit into the guy in Geru Trinity kind of thing. Bruce the Bastet is the aristocrats of the changing breeds, which, okay. Then some stuff on mages where they make the Order of Hermes seem almost more dangerous than the technocracy. Hmm. I mean, I, uh, I'm i not going to contradict that. Yeah, Verbena is the most, well, Cult of Ecstasy may be the most close to Shadowcourt, it says. Yeah. And then Verbena can get along with. Hollow Ones, it's, well, it's the whole, I don't know about them, but maybe we can use them. But everyone always talks about Hollow Ones. Hmm. Then we get into the wraith section, talking about the different wraith groups. And it's like, okay, maybe you want to deal with these wraiths, but uh, be careful. And then mortals, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, they're basically just food to the Fae, according to Shadowport. And or flowers. Yes. Okay, they could be all sorts of objects. Yeah. Objectification is the key thing. There. Oh, and it also brings up walking the bright road is something still done in the modern age. I don't know if that's referring to reincarnation for commoners or what, but... It's a good question. I wish we had more information about it because I don't think we get any ever again. So it's like... There, we do. It's just quite a long ways away in Denizens of the Dreaming. Well, yeah. 
And that's it for chapter two. Do you have any thoughts on it? Oh, I have many thoughts. I think it's a testament to this book that everything you just went through is crammed into about 14 pages. Yeah, this is like, like the densest. Yeah. Whether or not you like, oh, this is all good content. Although I do like most of the content in it. Yeah. It's so much content and, and actionable and, or at least useful throughout it. It seems to take its cue, warts and all, from Noble's The Shining Host, which was also a very mm-hmm. densely written book and was occasionally hit or miss with content. I do think The Shadow Court is a little bit more solid, probably because mm-hmm. they had nobles to draw from and kind of play off. Yeah, this is kind of the dark shadow of the shadow of Nobles the Shining Host. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, I mean, when people talk about, oh, Nobles the Shining Host is the kiss book she, it's like, well, no, not really. It's like kiss book Seely in a way. And this is like kiss book Unseely, you know, mm-hmm. court book, I guess you would call it. There were several moments, just little individual bits in this chapter that I really liked. I thought that the justification for their ritualism was cool because it talks about how the unseely in the time of the shattering were better able to adapt to the darkening world because they had these dark legacies or whatever and so they've retained more of their old traditions because they were less kind of blindsided by the shattering or they were blindsided by it but they were they were able to adjust to it more quickly and so they've been able to hang on to some of their past better than the seely have which i thought was interesting the romance there's a line that says political correctness has no place in the unseelie bedroom. I'm not entirely sure what that's supposed to mean, either in 1996 when this was written or 2022 when we're recording this. But I feel like that's not really something that needs to be in the game. Yeah, it 1996, it was more muddled in meaning, but still. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what it's supposed to mean. but mm-hmm. And the whole notion of having the romantic section, I'm like, uh. I thought the maskers were interesting, which is the romantic society that performs a relationship from start to finish over the course of a year. I thought that was kind Mm -hmm. of, because that to me almost sounds more like a ritual. That's almost like an extended Mm -hmm. bunk for some truly massive and interesting piece of magic, you know? Yeah. Well, the the shadow court in general is big on rituals for ritual sake too. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's not just necessarily a bunk. It's just... This ritual is just innately important. Well, in a sense, the the magic that they're enacting is the maintenance of the cycle and the, yeah. the maintaining of balance in a way. Once it says the beginning of the chapter, it's they are enacting the story of the dreaming. Exactly, yeah. Following that, their concept of honor and it's sort of... I wrote in my notes that it struck me as very anti-heroic, that everyone has their own code that they're living by, but the nature of their honor is dictated by the role they see for themselves in this pageant with a capital P. And that, it's interesting. Yeah. I like the ritualists among all the political impulses, and I like the pilgrims of the bright road among all the secret societies, because necromancers are, you know, necromancers are bay or whatever, as characters. In the POV section, a lot of the stuff we've talked about before, like, the, the Nunahi and the Minahune are, shall we say, not great in the representation here. There's some confusion about Fomorians and Fomori. There's mentions of Inanime without really much depth. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of this in other books already. I mean, the Nunahi and Minahune part is like, this chapter is written from the perspective of assholes who manipulate people to achieve their own ends. And, and that is how they describe the Nunahi and Minahune, at least. It's consistent. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> For the prodigals, I was glad to see 
the mention of in the La Sombra Alliance, they mentioned the ones who were trying to blot out the sun. So it's like, yay, abyss mystics, although they weren't mm-hmm. called that yet. There's also maybe my favorite line in the chapter is when they're talking about the black spiral dancers, they worship a monstrous thing known as the worm, possibly an ancient, powerful chimera conceived from the earliest nightmares of the first dreamers. And I love the idea that just, you know, werewolves or black spiral dancers or whomever trying to explain the worm to changelings as this like all powerful aspect of the universe. That's one of the three biggest entities and the changelings are like, Wow, sounds like a big chimera, and that's it. Yeah. You know? So that was wonderful. Yeah, but if they're like, if this was a big deal, it'd be showing up in all the stuff there. The changelings are doing it. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very rich chapter. A lot of this comes up again, like the um, the prodigal stuff is all in Book of Lost Dreams. I think they kind of mm-hmm. pretty directly borrow it over. Uh, so chapter three is Wheel of the Year. Full disclosure, I am as of the recording of this episode, working on a storyteller's vault project. That is a compendium of festivals and year long celebrations and events for the changelings. So I've been going very deep into some of this and I'll try to refrain from going off the deep end with talking about it. But yeah, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the wheel of the year and the cycle of the seasons in this book overall, but then especially in this chapter And I think that the underlying logic that's popping up here is the unsealing harken back to these traditions that are structured around constant change and the reliability of change. And maybe to some extent, uncertainty, like in the sense that when you look historically at a lot of these festivals, things like harvest festivals or winter festivals or summer festivals, a lot of it was centered around not only sharing the bounty of the earth, but also almost assessing where you are at with that bounty. So there's a reference at one point with midwinter, for example, where it says midwinter is the time when it becomes clear whether everyone's going to survive the winter or not, which is a, you know, a pretty bleak thread to have in your, your celebration. But if you do have enough for everyone to survive, that's when you have a big feast because there's a surplus. So from year to year, that variability in how much celebration you might actually have is something that I can see resonating with the Unsealy because it's keeping on your toes and everything is different from one moment to the next, one year to the next. It's not ossified and external like the Sealy systems are. The Sealy have slipped into using a calendar of convenience, imposing order on nature. And while the Unsealy might pay lip service to that, they still have these sort of old festivals embedded underneath with a hefty dose of Celtocentrism because this is changeling. So... There's on page 40, sort of an interesting array of viewpoints on rituals. There's some in the shadow court slash unsealy court, difficult to tell which one, who feel that rituals are vital for the fertility and abundance of the land or the earth, or maybe producing glamour. There's others who see it as this sort of metaphor for the road to self-awareness, like as you pass through these different stages, it's like going from festival to festival and the different meanings that they encode. And for most, it's just an excuse for vulgar excess. This is true for those who have forgotten the purpose of the cycle or who say that self-control is in and of itself too banal to be allowed, but everybody enjoys a party. So even the ones who deeply feel that ritual is important and keeps the dreaming alive and integrated into the autumn world, it's still a time to cut loose and party. Which makes sense because, you know, 
partying is part of the dreaming, honestly. I think one other thing to bring up, I'm not sure if we mentioned that, is a lot of these festivals, unlike the Sealy, who are not, they're saying they're being more traditional, with a few exceptions, it's not a date on the calendar, on like our official Gregorian calendar. It's based on the turning of seasons and what the climate is doing where you are in particular for a lot of these. Which I like, except for the fact that Carnival is one of the ones that they specifically say is not a movable date, when in reality, it's probably the most movable out of all of them. So that okay. bothered me. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a neat idea where they went back on the execution. Yeah. This is a changeling book. And like some of the dates they have, I mean, again, full disclosure, I say this as someone who hangs out with pagan folks. Some of the dates they have on here, I look at and I think like, hmm. I don't know if that's when I would be celebrating that with my people, but but you're not a, you're not one, you're not a shadow court fae now, are you? I'll plead the fifth on that. They also, I think they stopped by chapter three, but earlier on, there's repeated reference to Samhain and Beltane taking place at the equinoxes, and I just I had a conniption every time I saw it. So anyway, I missed that part because <laughs> here they explicitly acknowledge the equinoxes. Yeah, yeah. In the chapter where they distinguish them as separate festivals, yes, it is important to note that it does not take place at the equinox. So I'll just go through these very quickly. So the new year starts with Samhain, which is sort of the start of this inward journey and this journey of self-discovery, seeking knowledge through nightmare. The mists are parted. And so it's this time of everything opening up, all the possibilities opening up. It's a festival of liminality, which is displayed through sort of upheaval, having the Feast of Fools and everybody turning on Sealy and jumping over fires and stuff. So it's the line between the worlds blurs, and that's an appropriate time to start this to start this cycle, which is followed by Yule, which is the winter solstice. I like that they mention here the Unsealy Sea, the sort of evergreens that are characteristic of Yule as symbols of endurance, because their whole thing in relation to winter is we don't care about winter. We'll be fine. We'll find enough glamour to get by. It's all good. Stop worrying, you uptight Sealy folks. So reveling in that longest night, and in the case of the Shadow Court, separate from the Unsealy Court, giving presents that contain glamour to sort of to kind of show that they don't they don't care about conserving glamour. They'll give it away to whom they want. So that's Yule. Then midwinter follows in mid-January. And there's this tradition of the royal courts sending out firebrands to relight the bale fires at Imbolc, but that's more of a sealy thing, and the unsealing just go ravaging and hoarding glamour. But then Imbolc follows a few weeks after that, when the old bale fires are extinguished and cleared and relit with the firebrands from the royal courts. And there's tale telling, and it's a feast of bardic things. It's nice that they also note that uh, changelings who identify as female often lead the festivities because it is the sacred day of breach. So that's cool. Then we get Carnival. And Carnival is listed as February 28th. That's possible. It's also weird that Carnival is only listed as one day because usually it's many days. But I guess we're looking at like Mardi Gras. That's what we're talking about. But it's a feast of reversal and changing the self. So there's masks, there's costumes, there's disguises. There's in some 
more murderous corners of the Shadow Court, the ritual sacrifice of a mortal as a proxy for sacrificing a royal in order to renew the land, and then just rampant ravaging and revelry across the board. After that, we have the Vernal Equinox, which is the beginning of the end of the traditional time of the Unseelie, and it's a good time for them to do divination to see how they'll proceed through the Seelie half of the year. So they prepare to give up power. Before they do, there's the greening at the start of April, which is meant to celebrate youth and childlings and novelty. The Seelie celebrate childlings for their purity, the Unseelie for their immorality. It's a kind of purity. It is. They are unsullied by notions of decorum, I guess you could say. And then we have Beltane, which is the start of the light half of the year. It's a time of transition. There is a note here that as the Seely kind of lean into their Unseely legacies at Samhain, the Unseely can also turn Seely for a day at Beltane, which I don't feel like we hear nearly as much about. But it's also a time for taking oaths and lighting fires. The Shadow Court says they light the fires to guide those of their kind who are fleeing from the shit show that is Arcadia which is an interesting take on the situation, but you know. Then there's Midsummer, which is the shortest night of the year. And although it's sort of a peak time for Seelie festivities, it's also a time when the Unseelie are happy because from this point on, the darkness will begin to rise and the nights will begin to get longer. So they reestablish some of their alliances at that point in the year. Then a few weeks after that is High Summer, which is another day for widespread ravaging and Pranksgiving for Puka. Doesn't the book say Pranksgiving's April 1st in some other books? It's not this book, the other books. Well, there's multiple Pranksgivings. So oh, okay. I mean, obviously April 1st. April 1st is St. Stupid's Day. That's the mm. variant. So then there's Lunasa. Interestingly, and we just passed Lunasa, it says the Seelie don't honor this holiday, presumably because in the myths, Lu is half Fomorian and it's Lou's festival day. I don't know why that would necessarily preclude the Seelie from celebrating him because he's one of the landmark figures in Irish myth, but eh. In any case, sometimes the Shadow Court, they do this a lot. They sacrifice somebody. Uh, they're very big on human sacrifice. Well, I think this is Fae sacrifice here. Yes, a Seelie noble, in fact. So they sacrifice a Seelie noble to sustain the people through the coming darkness. And then the autumnal equinox is a time of anticipation because it's almost time for the dark half of the year again. One thing that I like about the celebration they have here is they ritually destroy dross or treasures to signify their belief that glamour will always be available. So it's kind of a screw you to the ceiling. It's like, yeah, I got your glamour right here. Smash. So, And then finally, we have Penons in early October, which is the sort of tournament holiday. It's all about chivalry for the ceiling mocking chivalry for the Unseelie, and intelligence gathering about the strength of the enemy for the Shadow Court. It's very much a celebration of the physical and the martial. And then we get to Samhain again, and that's the end of the year. The Unseelie has traveled upon his journey of self-discovery. He may have found what he sought, discovered the Seelie side of his nature, or slipped further away from understanding. Whatever has happened, though, he has come round again to the place where he began. He is not the same. The world has moved on, and the dancing spiral of time leaves nothing in its wake completely untouched. So says the end of the chapter. So yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on chapter three? Any favorite holidays? Uh, yes. I think I like the, I always pronounce it wrong, Imbolc? Imbolc? Imbolc, yeah. Yeah. Well, though the midwinter was pretty cool with the yeah. taking stock thing. Yeah. So then we've got chapter four. Yeah, chapter four. Shadow courtiers and other unseelie. This is the most player's guidery. <laughs> 
of the book here, I found a lot of focus on how to play this character, either as PCs or NPCs, although it doesn't really differentiate a lot on mm. what you would do. Uh, starts out with seemings, where they have Rigbeards, Ikiri, Grumps, Wilders, and Childlings. This really hits home to me how the, how different this feels from when I first started reading this in my late teens, early twenties, <laughs> getting into Changeling versus now when I'm in my forties. And I'm like, I feel like we need like if they kept the age thing, maybe they should have like another three levels of age. But cause I'm like, oh, twenty five, you're ancient and gonna die now. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. So there's more. There's more stuff after that, right? So yeah, it uh, basically gets into how Wilders run everything. Gets into cliques, which are guests like Motley's or Oath Circles or Shadow Court player character group. So you have old Greybeard cliques that love political machinations and deal with running freeholds or things like that. Ravaging cliques, which do a lot of ravaging. Pretender cliques, which are all about social climbing within changeling hierarchy. Obstinance clique. This is the one run by the unseely, uh, unseely houses, like the unseely she have a big influence there of trying to make it so the unseely houses should be in charge instead of the seely houses. Ritualistic cliques, these are rare, but this can actually be, it says you can, a clique with a Tremere vampire, Shadow Lord, and Octena Theurge werewolves and Hollow One mages, more extreme cliques associated with Tremere Enter Tribute, Dream Speaker Barabi, and even Black Spiral Dancers. So that's a fun crossover group. I don't know if fun is the word that I would choose there, but interesting, certainly. Mm-hmm. Exciting? <laughs> mm-hmm. Fractious, perhaps. Yes. Uh, jamming cliques, which are all about screwing up the, the social order rather than trying to take it over. And also making jam. Ah. Uh, chaos cliques, which are, well, let's not just make it difficult. Let's just really cause chaos. Just Let's just make it terrible for everybody. Then we get uh, takes on the un- Unseelie Kithane, which is interesting because some of them get extra rules. Uh, so we have Unseelie Boggins, gets in some details, and then adds a system. Yeah, okay, no, this just explains how they use their birthright. The issue also describes under systems. Unseelie Knockers get extra rules where they can deal with the 20th century invention of a specialty. I'd assume if you're using this today, also applies to 21st century. Uh, and this, I think, shows up in the second Ed Core book for Unseely. I think the most extensive systems we get are for red cap bites. <laughs> yes. About to get the yeah, Unseely Puka. Yeah, it doesn't really get more, more system for them. But yeah, the red cap get a huge system for like biting and taking off limbs and things like that. Satyrs. Satyrs, it seems like we get a system for if they smoke someone up. <laughs> yeah it just lowers banality so does, i can't remember if in the first headquarter book if it didn't lower banality with with gift of pan yeah intelligence plus crafts and a fat one i mean it could be tea it doesn't have to be smoking it could be Edward. oh yeah <laughs> unseely she which unlike all the other kiths get an extra frailty where you have to create a special code of honor and if you deviate from it you get the banality unseely slua get to Difficulty 10 slip through cracks, which is kind of pointless mechanically. And then trolls is just more details on it too. So some of them get new birthrights, some of them get new descriptions, and this year you get a new frailty that are unseely. I do. I mean, there's more than just the systems too. Like the, the no, write-ups no. I did actually quite like. So. Oh yeah, there's a lot of good write-ups on how to play yeah. them. Sorry, I got to say that. Yeah, <laughs> there is also that. 
A lot of it, I feel like, kind of rehashes what's in the player's guide, and I guess later on the Kith books, but mm -hmm. giving the unseely perspective on a lot of these Kiths is helpful, I think. Yes. Yeah, I should have said that. Yeah, that's actually very helpful. I, mm -hmm. I'd suggest if you're playing an unseely, especially Shadowport, read, even today, reading that section could be handy. Yeah. Just ignore the system part. Okay, so yeah, you have the houses now. Three unseely houses. House Aleel, which have been discussed in previous books. Briefly. They're like Dark Gwydion, is the best way I put them. They're super manipulative good at politics and subterfuge. And the La Sombra to the Gwydion's Ventru. Yes. And their flaw is that they're extra overconfident in their abilities in non-combat situations, like in social situations. Mm -hmm. And then if they get shown their faults, they actually get a plus one difficulty all social roles. We have House Baylor. They are, they have Fomorian blood in them. They're better at using cold iron than your average fae. They still, if they're killed with cold iron, they still suffer the same penalty, though. They have some sort of deformity, physical, mental, or emotional, which cannot be rectified through prosthetics or psychological help. This whole book does not have anything close to even remotely safety systems or any advice on that, so that's fun. In the sense of, like, gamer safety? Yeah. I mean, this was the early, this was the mid-90s, so. Well, you know, weirdly, there is actually a note I forget where it is. I think it's chapter six when they talk about storytelling. Yeah. It's like, Oh, this chapter yeah. contains suggestions for dimming the lights. And I read that as kind of like a precursor to sort of the lines and veil system that's often used or the yellow yeah. card, red card system. And that I don't think they follow through on it at all in the entire chapter mm -hmm. or the rest of the yeah. book for that matter. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, just saying people, you need that if you're going to run this kind of game mm -hmm. and the book doesn't address it. But back in the day, none of the books, I don't know, I can't think of any book that published in 1996 or earlier that nope. had something like that. Nope. So then we have House Leannon, are very defined by their flaw. They're extra charismatic, taking above five, and good at uh, social stuff, like seduction. But they age, and this is the most punishing, I think, version of it. They have to engage in Rhapsody at least once a week or else they age, but doing a bunch of it can take them back again. Yeah. So. Yeah, they needed the errata they got later. I think it's implying they have to do a role for Rhapsody, not a completion of Rhapsody, but it's a bit unclear there in this book. Yeah. And then we go to the Thaling, which are twisted versions of the Kithane. Not every one of the Kiths gets a Thaling in this book, but the and it talks about these are kind of the lesser Thaling races on Earth. Mm -hmm. Oh, does it imply this greater Thaling? Well, they mentioned the Genkuner and the Banshee, for example, as like, yeah. which in Nobles the Shining Host, they were just kind of chimerical beings. But yeah. it seems like they might be implied to be greater Thaline because they're sort of unique yeah. and powerful. Yeah. So we start with the Beasties, which I, th I think of as Funtime Puka. <laughs> they, they can transform just like Puka. They get up to something you could call a trick or prank. Often the one they're pranking doesn't survive it, but... And instead of turning into an animal, they turn into horrible nightmare forms. So each one has a different nightmare form. Hooray. And they also... Gaia's Mercy Birthright, which is a weird thing to have in a changeling book, but basically causes the mists for their... Whenever they do beastie violence. Oh, they don't even have to be in their beastie form in this version. And the hunt. Seelie have an innate hatred of beasties, and those can store at least three successes in a willpower roll, difficulty nine, will attack them on sight, assuming they recognize them for what they are. So that's, uh, you know, good for mixed groups. 
that's the kind of mechanic that I'm actually really not fond of in games. Yeah. You're the same way about, I think it's in Beast, the Primordial, where, you know, other supernaturals are just kind of compelled to like the character. And it's yep. just, I'm like... Yeah, the no, flaw no. is causing mind control on other people. It's yeah, just, it's just, yeah. Because it railroads the story in a way that removes choice and agency from yeah. players. And, and but, this is uh, changed in C20, by the way, that I forgot. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah. So... Yeah. Next, we have the Bogarts, which are the Thalian version of Boggins. <laughs> These are Ferengi. If you've seen Star Trek, especially Deep Space Nine, they're Ferengi kith. They work together a lot, but can do one third the normal time in business specialties. So they can run businesses all the time. They don't have to sleep two hours a night. They work in packs. They have a pack mentality. They can sniff out unseely Boggins in each other. They're super greedy and want to steal, and they cannot use the empathy ability to understand humans, but they can use it to harm humans. So they're just, they're the capitalist kith is another way of putting it. I uh, think of them as Leonardo DiCaprio from Wolf of Wall Street, that kind of mm-hmm. coked out. And uh, anyway. <laughs> Speaking of someone who's had hard life from certain harder drugs, uh, you have the bogeys. But bogeys give the slew a bad name to lighten killing. They, they're gross. They're just gross. Yeah, they're very <laughs> gross. Affinity scene. They can vomit black, inky blackness. They can become invisible technology. If they're bound, they take damage, like one health level an hour. And even just being confined freaks them out. Well, it actually hurts them too over, over the days. Mm-hmm. Then we have my other favorite Thaline, the goblins. They're just, I don't know, they're all depicted as green here, but they're described as like knockers are often mistaken for them, but the art's very different. They're also very short. Like, okay, that's. They don't look anything like knockers, and they're very short. But okay. maybe in, in human form only. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, birthrights. They can construct a mayhem device that's somewhat real, but the mists kind of cover it up a little bit. So some sort of weapon of strange destruction. Mm-hmm. They can instead of fixing things, they can break stuff, and anything they make has a flaw, kind of like the knockers do. But their flaw is extra bad, and usually hurts people around it especially the owner i do really like the quote that they have at the end here where it says you will note that the harsh lines and structural rigidity of the explosive chamber is contrasted by the more rococo elements in the wiring of the detonation device what do you think apprentice (laughs) yeah yeah boom like perfect yes you have the ogres which i think look better than all of the trolls we've seen up to this point they're big and blue and scary they're not a friendly monster too, though. Uh, they get two dots of strength, but no extra health levels. They don't have any honor stuff about them. They can their smells like chicken birthright lets them. <laughs> it's an evil detector, so they can tell Thaline really easily. They can tell the difference between Seely and Unseely. And with a roll, they can sense the person's general emotional state. I don't know about evil detector though, because that implies Unseely is evil. Which I mean, it doesn't say it only does. Yeah. Might also be able to detect evil, though, on top of that. But it's put, it put in quotes who's evil and who isn't. That's true. Also, they're apparently dumb as rocks to pay twice the normal cost for act, for putting anything into intelligence, including, you know, points, freebie, like dots, freebie points, and experience points into intelligence. I, I, play, I ran a game for a while that had a ogre. It was a family of changelings for the PCs, and there was an ogre childling in that, and she actually got along pretty well with everybody. Oh, cute. Then we have a new background prestige, which is Shadow Court title-ish. 
it's very fluctuating. You either get a promotion at Samhain or you lose levels. So you're always changing every year at least. And there's specific rules of like you're in it. Like one of it, level one, you're just sort of in the shadow court, kind of. Level two, you're in charge of an area. Level three, you now have a title in the Sealy or Unsealy court. It gives you one dot of title, but it's temporary, which is weird. Level four is Mastermind. You're kind of in charge of other things. You get automatic resources. And level five is Instigator. You're in charge of stuff. I think it implies, I don't know if it says it here, but it implies, like, for instance, you're immune to the Sowing Mists mm -hmm. if you're an Instigator. Instigators and their Ritualists, yes. Yeah. Are immune to the Sowing Mists. Yeah, and you get bonuses to, we're doing rituals to get some stuff for that. And yeah, that takes us through the end of chapter four. Other thoughts there? I mean, I have so many, like, all these chapters are so dense. <laughs> it's like, in these 25 pages, we got all the Thalane. We got, you know, I actually, I quite liked the take, I'll go back to the beginning. The take on seemings, I actually thought was one of the most interesting parts of the book because it gives these these little reflections on how seemings might work in the shadow court. And in particular, to your point about adding more age brackets, how ageism among the Kithane could be a reason why Grumps might move over to the Unsealy or the Shadow Court, because they value guile and treachery over youth and beauty, which is what the Sealy seem to value. Mm -hmm. So I found that actually really interesting. And then kind of having Wilders as these fatalistic anti-heroes who treat Ravaging as a sacred mission and Childlings just running around causing chaos. It's like, okay. But each seeming still has usefulness for the court because the Grumps are experienced in dealing with mortals the wilders are enthusiastic about getting out into the world and finding out information. And the childlings are like the heart of the court because they just want to mess with everything with the clicks. It's again, one of those things, which I remember when we went through the first edition core book, because this is connected to patronage and changeling is kind of getting together and saying, not in the same way as a motley necessarily, but saying we're all getting together for a purpose, whether it's to in the Sealy sense inspire particular groups of artists or in the case of the shadow court clicks uphold particular tenets of the manifesto and the way they have it listed out here each one is kind of associated with one of those tenets so like the graybeard clicks are the ones because they're so familiar with mortals they fulfill the first tenet of the manifesto to get into the mortal world and help those who can't survive in it get out so that's a cool piece of the puzzle aside from that i mean we talked about the different Kith write-ups with the Unsealy Houses. I have a soft spot for House Leonin because my first long-running character was House Leonin. I have a Leonin tattoo on my shoulder. <laughs> it was like, it was a big deal for me, you know. But I am glad that they got errata down the line for their curse to be a little more feasible. We don't have here notes from Book of Lost Dreams that the Elil have kind of Nefandi detectors. They can sense Nefandi within a certain radius. And then Baylor, I believe in Book of Lost Dreams, they're described as never becoming Seelie. They have a Seelie legacy, but they never actually become Seelie. And so for a while, they were kind of like Thalane in a sense. But uh, yeah. As for the Thalane, I would love to see some kind of Boggart Syndicate matchup. I feel like that could mm. be a really interesting sort of... Sort Shout of, out to Terry Robinson. Yeah. This happened. This is a chronicle that will be someday. But I do also, I like the goblins as well. Mm -hmm. It's a very rich chapter overall. 
there's so much here that you can draw from if you're running a Shadow Court game. So I approve. So chapter five is at least pretty straightforward. It's just the two dark arts of contempt and delusion. Contempt is sort of the anti-sovereign. Each of the levels except for the fifth can be used to counter a specific sovereign power, or they have sort of other ancillary things that they do. So you have mockery can cancel out protocol, disobedience can cancel out dictum, etc., etc. And then delusion Delusion's kind of a, a grab bag. It's kind of drawing on the power of the mists to do various effects, which include feigning innocence when you're guilty, putting on a disguise, manipulating memory, causing a sort of post-hypnotic suggestion in people, and then kind of an order of magnitude leap in power when you get to level five, you can send someone on a year-long quest that's like a gaze where they have to discover their true unseely self. So mm-hmm. that's the purview of the instigators of the shadow court. And to have access to these arts, you need to be welcomed into the shadow court. I don't actually want to go too deeply into these because I would like to give a shout out to Charlie Cantrell, whose recent book with co-authors, Harbingers of Winter, repurposes these arts for C20 and does them justice for mm-hmm. that setting, I think. I would like to say, I've heard a lot of complaints about this rendition of the arts. I don't, I mean, mechanically, they're a bit of a mess, but I don't oh, yeah. think they're any more of a mess than the core book arts for first edition, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I also don't think, I mean, I suppose your mileage may vary. It's, if you have a very sovereign heavy game, these become dramatically more useful. But mm-hmm. even without that, I think there's potential. Yeah, there's there. still uses of them outside of campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Level. I do also like, there's a sidebar uh, on the delusion section called nurse mating, where they talk about the use of the facade cantrip, which creates a disguise, and how this is the root of the actual changeling myths, where mischievous fae will abduct young children or beautiful lovers and put fae in their place, and you know, disguised as the mortal. And I don't know if that's the only time in canon where we get direct reference to the, the myth of changelings in European folklore. But I feel like the core books all say, unlike your unlike in folklore, changelings, blah, blah, blah. Right. But this is this is the one point in Changeling the Dreaming, at least, where it's like, no, yeah, this is absolutely a thing. So Yeah. I guess the other thing would be the way the she work in first edition core book. In a sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that sort of got retconned partway through first exactly. edition. <laughs> So anyway, um, it's two arts. They're fine. I don't have a particular love for them or problem with them, I suppose. But I think that the the level five delusion art, the darkest heart, because there's references elsewhere in the book of the quest of the darkest heart. And it seems like you could build an entire chronicle from a single casting of that cantrip that launches an entire story. Yeah. So that takes us to chapter six, storytelling. Uh, it starts out talking about you need to balance dimming the lights this is what it talks about uh starts out though with epiphanies and how to bring epiphanies into your game this does a more thorough job of that than i've seen with like any sealy stuff for epiphanies anywhere yeah oh absolutely yeah there's so much information about how to ravage (laughs) and it's like it's also how to incorporate it into your how to focus make your chronicle have a lot of epiphany focus Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm I think this extends the rules. I'm not trying to remember between editions, but it has a lot more rules for ravaging too, including 
Okay, so you can view it like a psychic assault and just generally ravage, or there's ravaging thresholds, which kind of mirror the musing thresholds. These show up in later core books too. Mm-hmm. You can exhaust creativity, destroy hope, destroy love, create anger, break trust, exploit dependence, destroy illusions. I've got a question for you. There's reference here to ravaging thresholds being a separate and more refined form of ravaging than the basic kind. So they say things like, oh, straightforward ravaging is just a plain old psychic assault. What does that mean in your opinion? Because it's not really- To me, in my opinion, it's, well, what it says is you have to just have a brief conversation. It doesn't have to be doing much. Yeah. And it doesn't have to really have anything overt or obvious in it, I don't think. So you just talk to somebody and roll banality? Yeah. That's what it seems to be saying. I'm not saying it's good, yeah. but I'm... yeah, it's it's something that that kind of doesn't sit right with me because when I look at the ravaging thresholds, you know, something like create anger, I could see something like have a conversation with someone and get them angry, mm-hmm. and that would work. But beyond that, but this is yeah, this we're saying psychic assault is the easiest method of ravaging, but some change is like a more exotic tastes, right? So this is like an optional rule, or even optional, not even optional to your chronicle, but could be like different characters may or may not have it kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. So it just gives, <laughs> yeah, gives you like a minus one difficulty break on doing your ravaging. Yeah, again, I'm not a big fan of this pure psychic assault either, but I think that's what it is saying to do. Then there's ravaging location sidebar, which is extra confusing because there's no system for it. But I loved this though. <laughs> yeah, I love it conceptually. I just want a bit more to. We need to bring this back. You know, I want to ravage locations. Well, there's two things you can doing a lot of ravaging in a location can twist the location, but also ravaging the location itself can gain glamour and damage the location. Which is a nice inversion of the sort of trope of, oh, the mage is going to come suck the freehold dry. Well, maybe the unsealer are going to come and ravage the node dry. Yep. Then we get a brief four paragraphs on Rhapsody introducing it, I believe at this point. Yep. Which is where you soup. It's like kind of like dark musing where you supercharge with glamour and then the creator creates a work of art and then you destroy it and you get their glamour and the, you've destroyed the dreamer. And this is the thing that house Lee and Han has to do weekly in this book. Then we have a bunch of unsealy bunks. This was an interesting bit. Uh, this had a little section that kind of confused me talking about recreating bunks in the real world. Were you supposed to do bunks <laughs> just actually act them out? I like to, I think it's, Maybe more directed at the LARP crowd, those folks. Yeah, I mean, I would do that in a LARP or, or mime it. I mean, some of it, like one of them, it's like fill your mouth full of cigarettes and light it or some of those bunks. No. Yeah, some of these are not advised by the Surgeon General. Yeah, and this is actually the one of the few safety tools in the other sense of I have some, you could have props handy to represent materials. So like if you're in public, don't do stuff or just don't do things that'll kill people. <laughs> or injure them in any way or get you arrested or you're like at a con doing it and everyone's like what the hell yeah so maybe calm it down a little bit you know don't get you kicked out basically and then a bunch of example bonks i don't know if this is fully compatible does this have everything you need that you can make bunk cards out of this or did they just kind of give up on those at this point i think those have been given up yeah i do like how there's a little star next to all the ones that are appropriate for combat Mm. that would not interrupt combat actions. It does kind of raise the question again, which I know I've brought up before, but in terms of C20's stance on what constitutes the level of power of a bunk, 
because some of these, so like the Legere domain level five bunk that's listed here is to draw blood from your fingertip and leave three drops of it on the ground. It's a lot easier than the level five bucks in C20. Exactly. <laughs> Although if the player has to do it. Well, right. That's, so that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you, do you get a mechanical bump for actually enacting bunks out of character? That's an interesting, I don't know that I want to deal with player character bleed to that extent in my games. I mean, this also getting into the star thing where doing that can be done in combat, but twirling your mustache can't. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. Okay. Next page has a, yeah, it says the, the storyteller could opt to not require bunks being act out. Hooray. And this talks about antagonism 101. You know, your villains have interesting motivations besides just being a villain. Shouldn't just be an obstacle for the hero. Then we get into Shadow Court Chronicle structures. So they talk about some ways. I don't know why these are specifically Shadow Court, but one way is yeah. if you want to have a plot that's covering a long period of time, you can do lots of scenes and jump a lot of time throughout it. Yeah. It sort of talks a bit about that without too much detail. Then running one shots, which say don't have to be only one session. I guess they mean short chronicles where the idea is you have an ongoing changeling game and either in the same world or a separate sort of world or whatever you run, you just let your player, everybody get out all the evil shit they want to do into their game. So it says here in live action gaming, there's an old saying, win big or lose big. Is this true? I've never heard it, <laughs> but I, the, I was not lurking in 1996 yet. Fair. Then another way is adversary characters which is two very different ways of doing things, I think. One is have some of your player characters, player characters secretly be Shadow Court, not tell everybody else. Don't do that. No. You can tell everybody out of game, and if everyone's cool with it, we role play like them not getting along. I'm cool with that. Yeah, that's But everyone should be cool with that. Yeah. They need to know what they're getting into. The other one is at least less problematic if more... Um, complicated is you run two parallel stories with two groups actually i love doing that <laughs> and having them antagonize each other without ever actually meeting like in the fifth element i think it's great i've been trying to do that online actually with a nobilis game but i couldn't get a second group going so oh. we'll put out the call in the show notes yeah well i also realized i don't actually have two nights i could devote to nobilis fair right now <laughs> so and then third one, that they encounter the plot separate... How's the, I don't know, really understand the difference between second and third method, but it's talking about different ways of having player characters compete against each other, either in the same group or separate groups. Yeah. Then there's the villain's journey. I'm not as big on hero's journey as you, but it's the villain's journey, which is the hero's journey, but for villains. Oh, I, I, I never meant to give the impression that I was big on the hero's journey, so I okay. apologize if I did that. Yeah. Okay. I don't really know how it mirrors. I mean, it looks kind of like the hero's journey, I'm not sure if how different it is or if it's, it's not. the same thing. Especially, there's been kind of a shift, I would say, in media and perceptions of narrative, even since this book came out, probably, where now like villains need to have some kind of understandable motivation and they need to be relatable and they need to be not all bad. And there's a lot more emphasis on sort of shades of gray for mm -hmm. both heroes and villains now in media. And I think that when this book came out, that was kind of starting to happen, but it hadn't nearly reached the volume that it has 25 years yeah. later. It, I mean, World of Darkness in general had, did have from day one an anti-hero point. Yeah, it, but, but so so to call this, though, the villain's journey, 
it's it's kind of like the old the old saw oh every villain is the hero of his own story the villain doesn't see it as the villain's journey they see it as the hero's journey just with different challenges and different pitfalls and different goals than someone who is externally seen as quote heroic you know should a hero be a term that somebody applies to themselves or that others apply to them that's kind of the the question there but yeah I didn't find this, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't find it new or particularly useful, except that it gave ideas for how shadow court members might kind of interact with each other along the stages of a story. So you have notes about like, Mm -hmm. one of the stages in the villain's journey is meeting with the mentor. So what does a shadow court mentor look like? So that that's valuable. Yep. And then we have a final word, which (laughs) I think in this book is the worst bit of storyteller advice I've read where it says it's basically saying okay if there's lots of violence anybody can do that we can't stop you but think better of it okay and then it talks about oh if your characters do engage in violence maybe they can the police can show up at the wrong time just with leaks in action well more than one clique has been undone by banality cooling off in a prison cell i'm like if you want to do this in your game maybe uh, talk to your players and get everyone on the same page this is a lot of yeah yeah it's very wishy-washy about violence well it's also punishing it's like punish your players for playing wrong without talking to them about it is sort of what it, at least a way someone could take this but it doesn't say don't talk to them about it but it doesn't say to talk to them about it so yep and that's the end of chapter six and then we get to chapter seven and salad <laughs> which oh god i just noticed the first sentence of this chapter is the winter equinox marks both the beginning and ending of the unseelie calendar. Ah! All right. Disclaimer. Winter does not have an equinox. Winter has a solstice. Samhain does not occur at either the winter solstice or the autumnal equinox that precedes it. It occurs at the midway point, October 31st slash November 1st, which has been appropriated into Halloween over the centuries. Is it even the midway point? R- roughly, roughly. Somewhere roughly in the middle. Yeah. So yeah, Samhain is sort of the pinnacle of shadow courtness in the sense that traditionally it's the time when power would have been handed over to them. It's the time when all of the unseeliness that they espouse comes to the fore. So they've heavily ritualized the holiday and made it into their own. I think like with the wheel year, I'm just going to kind of speed through some of the list of activities that take place over the course of the Samhain holiday. So... It starts with Hell's Night, which I grew up calling Mischief Night, which is October 30th. I don't know. Do you have Mischief Night in Canada? No, we barely even have tricks. That's fair. Mischief Night is when you like egg people's cars and stuff and throw toilet paper in the train. No, we get that. If we're going to get if you're gonna get something egged, it'll be on Halloween night after you've turned off the lights because you ran out of candy. Well, you, that happens too, but Mischief Night is you get the bonus night beforehand. I won't say I've never committed vandalism, but I've never egged... No someone's car so then you have trick-or-treat which tends to be somewhat more vicious for changelings sometimes they switch places with human children and go running amok yeah definitely if i if i had a lot of unseelie childlings in my neighborhood i'd definitely be the house that gives up like the full cans of pop though or something yeah just to be on the safe side nice so then at the festivities proper you have hide and freak which is when Seelie nobility disguise themselves to attend the sound festivities. 
the sound mist make it easier to disguise oneself on this night, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And the mists will eradicate whatever the nobles do. It's, it keeps saying nobles here, but I think this applies to all changelings as well, probably. So <laughs> then there's a masquerade where facades will be provided for guests to adopt. And I read facades as almost alternate identities. So not just a mask and a costume, mm-hmm. but an entirely different persona, probably a more unseely persona than the person might normally have. Yeah. But it can also, it could also be a handy use of a delusion there. Yeah. There's a mock court where commoners are crowned with paper and sort of like the classic feast of fools kind of thing. And then there's an actual feast with lots of food and libations and everything Childlings eat mountains of candy, red caps eat mountains of other things, and satyrs, well, they fulfill other appetites. One of the many tournaments that takes place on Samhain Eve is the eating competition. So that happens. I imagine the red caps almost always win. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a separate red cap versus, it's like that's the heavyweights, the red caps, and the non red caps get their own. And ogres. Ogres also, you know, in, in a freehold where Thalin are welcome. And the satyrs' feast is. A tournament to see who can lead the most chaste and innocent individuals across the most sexual thresholds on one night. So the converts can be enchanted, but all participants must be willing. It is a contest of seduction as well as technique. Are the judges present for all of this? I imagine they must be. Maybe there's like yeah. maybe there's interviews at the end, and mm-hmm. or maybe that maybe the conquests themselves rate the experience. Then everybody sort of descends into their unseelyhood. Seely changelings who avoid that are sometimes chased down and antagonized until they go unseely and lose their tempers or whatever. At midnight, there are bonfires over which people like to jump or confess their misdoings. There are storyteller competitions, the stories that receive the greatest oration, biggest celebration, or highest number of sexual propositions are referred to private audiences. So I guess that's like upper tier storytelling. And there's also invention contests by knockers and goblins with much explosivity. There are mock tournaments, including car jousting, which I guess is kind of like playing chicken, but with souped up machines with chimerical weapons mounted on them or something. Yeah, I always picture motorcycles as the jousting vehicle of choice. Mm. But... It says buses are allowed as well, though. Wow. That would be a sight. Yep. <laughs> Throughout the night, there's also high-ranking shadow courtiers who travel around looking for potential recruits. It specifies also Unseely Ishu, and I'm wondering, I don't remember this from the earlier Ishu section, but is it implied that Ishu are like the main recruiters of the shadow court? I guess that's a thing. Not really, no. I mean, it didn't imply that they're low-level either. It's implied in the short story at the start, but otherwise I think that's the only time this is really foregrounded. I mean, recruiter isn't necessarily the super high level. Yeah, it's just, it's odd that, that they're singled out as a kith that recruits. Like, why not mm-hmm. Unseely Boggins? You know, anyway. Yeah, they don't mention it. I just flip back, they don't yeah. have it at all. I'm a little right up on them. In addition to the recruitment, there's also instigation, where the leaders of the Shadow Court get together to decide who's going to be the instigators for the next year. Because, as mentioned previously, nobody retains their Shadow Court prestige from sound to sound. And then late in the evening are some more mystical rituals. The Slua commune with the dead. The nobles commune with deceased Fae. In the ritual of the Eidolon, the nobility attempt to ask questions of the deceased Fae and get mysterious information back. 
It's actually, I really like the way the ritual is described because it says like black avians descend into the chambers where their rituals are perpetrated and Fay whisper questions and information to the Eidolons. And then they write down the responses, but it's like automatic writing. And when they read it the next day, they can't always make sense of it. So I think that's actually, again, a really cool scene to have in a, in a game. And there's also just lots of prophecy taking place through the course of the night. Soothsaying that Bode's ill fortune is at a minus three difficulty. And then an hour or two before dawn, the soothsayers will hold a ceremony for the newly chosen instigators. Oh, yeah. There's a whole negative everything. I think Apuka wrote this section. Which part? As there is never human sacrifice at these events, the few survivors that are left (laughs) after. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Human sacrifice never takes place at these events. Right. And then there's what's called the legend of the heavens, which is this notion that the most powerful unsealing in Arcadia can briefly return to earth for one night, but they can't appear in their true forms. Nevertheless, they contact the most devoted members of the shadow court to give them some tips and pointers and learn about how things are going on earth. Whether or not that's true, I suppose is up to the storyteller. And then dawn breaks and the mists return at their strongest, blotting out the memories of the entire evening or most of the evening. There's a bit of dreamlike recollection, except for the instigators and their ritualists who remember everything. So here's my question for you. Do you think it's the instigators that were made instigators last year or the new instigators that remember? I imagine it's both. I imagine as the instigators transition during the rituals of the soothsayers, probably the old instigators memories start to fade and the new ones mount mm-hmm. yeah but that's sound it's a rollicking good time yeah it's definitely i i ran a i've been in played in games with sowing and uh definitely and i've run stuff and it's definitely been inspired by a lot of this okay next we have the final chapter chapter eight notorious and not so notorious kithane and we start with the Gallery of Notorious Cathane. These are brief write-ups of significant characters without stats. And first with, uh, I can never pronounce his name, your Italian? <laughs> Italian. Yeah, of House Salil, the Forsworn Prince. He was in previous books that we've done. Here. Yeah, he's the, he's the primary antagonist of the Immortalized Chronicle. Yeah. It's to reunite Arcadia with Autumn under the Aegis of the Shadow Court. I don't know if there's really much new information here on him. No, not really. It's weird too with the timing of these books. I mean, so Court of All Kings, the third volume of Immortal Eyes. Technically, I think it came out before the Shadow Court, but it has references in it that says like, look at the Shadow Court, page whatever. So Yeah, I mean, they're all being, there was a lot of books being published. Sort of together, like written together, going through the publishing process. So yeah. Like the text could have been done for Shadow Court while they were still writing. Nevertheless, confusion. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Then we have Etienne Dubois, the face of terror, an extra scarred red cap from the French Revolution who got burned and he escaped the guillotine and he's a legend among red caps and some say he's still around today. There's Tyria Winter, which was a Leonhan who... Emerged from the Dreaming in Ireland in 1969 and then went to San Francisco. Started up a psychedelic band where she just kept on rhapsodying everyone in the band. And then eventually, after going through a lot of band members, and one part where she actually liked some one of them and was starting to get old, and then until she eventually ravaged him, doesn't say that outright, but that's what happened, went and started targeting more uh, lesser-known musicians and whatnot. 
who are less uh, out in the public eye. I feel like there's a, a slight under the radar dig in the fact that she moved from San Francisco to LA. <laughs> She's like, Oh, she found a new cache of talent to prolong her youth in LA. It's like, oh. yep. Uh, yeah. But still targeting musicians. Yeah. And then we have Edna Baylor of house Baylor. She wasn't even trying with her alias. Was she? No. Well, I mean, winter also. Like... Yeah. But, but, Edna Baylor, who's really Adana of House Battler, like, come on. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, she's supposedly the picture of Irish beauty. An IRA quartermistress. Yeah. And then we get to the more typical example characters, starting with the adorable, the littlest beastie. Aw. The quote, monsters aren't scary at all unless it's dinner time. Do you want to join us for dinner? Yeah, you're big. You're five, and in your new house, you know to take care of yourself. The nice troll who runs your freehold gives all, all the spaghetti and Oreos you want. Is this your favorite template out of the... This is my favorite <laughs> template of this, yep. Ravaging destroy illusions. That one didn't quite fit with the rest, but... Well, the illusion that, that, that they're a, a perfect little child. That's something to just... Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, she's got delusion and chicanery and kenning monsters, with, like the specialty of monsters. Stamina, excitable, specialty, charisma, wicked, specialty, survival in spooky woods, specialty. Like, it's great. <laughs> Next, we have the goblin arsonist. You're, well, a goblin who's an arsonist. Seems pretty cut and dry to me. Bit one note, but uh, again, specialized in delusion. What? You think pirate? Oh, they didn't have pyretics yet, did they? Yeah, pyretics was around. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, Delusion 3 seems like a weird thing to do. I assume they just wanted to kind of showcase the new stuff. Yeah. I mean... Yep. Issue Revolutionary, which I feel like it's a bit of a over-the-top dig on left-wing activists, maybe? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't I didn't necessarily see that. Yeah, yeah. or she at least prays... She, pray, she goes into political groups that need your help, you inspire them, and then some incident tears it all apart. So you're just ravaging activist groups. That's what she's doing. Yeah, I think that's primarily. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that it's necessarily a dig on the groups themselves, because I imagine most of the authors are pretty lefty. So That's true, yeah. There is the whole thing, weirdly, where the sealy are kind of right-wing and the unsealy are left-wing. Kind of-ish. Kind of-ish. Well, but... we should have a separate episode talking about that. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, it's a thing that keeps running through where it's... it's... Anyway. Uh, Machiavellian Manipulator who's a she of House Allele. Surprise, surprise. I found this one the most boring, I have to say. Yeah, the character concept is you are a she of House Allele. That's your concept. Yeah, full stop. That's the whole thing. Yep. Even give him Sovereign one, so you can make everyone behave, I guess. Okay. Seder Edge Dancer. I, I didn't quite understand this concept. Are you... I think they Thrill Seeker would have been a better... Uh, I assume that's more what they meant here. Yep. Either that or... Well, the art certainly implies Thrill Seeker because she's clinging to the top of a church steeple. Yep. You always take risks pushing the envelope. Yeah. So maybe edgy edgy art or something. (laughs) Ravaging Threshold courting death? Yeah, that's why I thought... I think Thrill Seeker, like... Yeah, I just remember, is that a ravaging threshold they put? Well, and that, to return to my earlier question, can you just make up your own? Because I always have. Well, yeah, it looks like you can. I, I just, I'd need more. If I was storyteller for this character, I'd be like, can you explain what you mean by that as ravaging? But, uh... 
And then the final template is my favorite. So. Uh, this is my second favorite. <laughs> I love creepy murder children. So Slua Childling Assassin. Yeah. I'm not so big on uh, child labor. That's my main problem with this character concept. But uh, I don't I don't think she's necessarily no. doing it out of necessity. Oh, she's not getting paid. If she's not getting paid, that's fine. If it's volunteer work, that's that's good character building. I mean, so she decided it's fun, so Yeah, she gets the her she has the treasure of ever reviving bubblegum. I mean, yeah, of course this is not something that I'd ever want to see a person be in the real world, but as a character in a role playing game. Yeah. There's so much to admire about this write-up, I feel. So, and the art is like priceless. So she gets a Chimera too. Is that the silenced pistol that looks like a squirt gun or is that something else? Yeah, probably. I assume. And then we get a example shadow court character sheet, which is basically the same as the, well, I guess as the nobles, the nobles, the shining host character sheet, because it has romantic legacies Mm -hmm. on it. So, yep. So what's your overall thoughts on this book? I mean, I I think it's invaluable for anyone who wants to run an Mm -hmm. Unseelie Heavy or outright Shadow Court Chronicle, even even nowadays. Like C20 and and Harbingers of Winter expand a lot on a lot of the stuff in here, but it's it's so rich. And like I said, it's Mm -hmm. you could you could run an entire chronicle without the core book, without using the core book for anything other than basic mechanics. The only things that I would have added to this book would be like and this wasn't really done at the time, I suppose, but if there were some kind of jumpstart story for Shadow Court characters, yep. maybe a little more crunch in the form of things like treasures, merits and flaws, things like that. Yep. And honestly, I would have loved to see some kind of essay or section on the nature of chimerical things from an unseely perspective. So like dark glamour wasn't a formal concept at this point. But you could still talk about glamour from an unseelie perspective and banality from an unseelie perspective or the dreaming or trods or chimera. Like, how do they regard all of those things? Because in the core book, it's still primarily through the seelie lens and throughout most of the other books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, not really done, I also would have really liked, like we said before, safety tools. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That would be like how to run this responsibly. Yeah. If it were written now, I'm sure it would be in there. So. Because mm-hmm. they tilt at it, but then it's like, eh, doesn't really yep. get there. And the fact that if you take away the pages that are taken up by character templates and like chapter art and all this sort of filler matter, like this is this is barely a hundred pages, and it packs in so much stuff. Oh yeah, it's the one of the densest role playing yeah supplements ever. And it not only is it dense, like with 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 useful. It's not like it's word heavy. It has so much art. Yeah. The layout focused on useful text per word is amazing in this book. Yeah. Every paragraph has an idea that I can see how to leverage into a game. And that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the art is decent and the epigraphs are fine. And it's just, it's a great book. Yeah. It's a, it's a very solid supplement. Any, any issues I have with it are, it was a first ed changeling book. Yeah. I also want to say I this book is near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. So my I I got this book back in the day when it was already long out of print, but before books were easily available and long before there were PDFs mm-hmm. available. And for my birthday one year, my sibling handed me the Shadow Court and just said, "Oh, here, happy birthday" without any fanfare. 
and it, I almost dropped it. I just, I was, because mm -hmm. it was so mythologized to me. It was like, it's that book that everybody's looking for, but nobody can find. Mm. And I was, I just sat and read the whole thing cover to cover because it was like, ah. I, I need to get the physical copy of this one. Like this is, uh, I've been using, P, like I, I when I backed the C20 Kickstarter, I got a whole, like the whole back collection of PDFs. Yeah. But this, this one I never had physical, I had roommates who had a physical copy of this. I remember that. Uh, but yeah, I love this book too. Uh, it's probably my favorite first edition book. Yeah, I I would say it's a tie between this and The Enchanted for me. Mm -hmm. The Enchanted had good parts. This one had more as a percentage, I think, of the parts I loved. The Enchanted, I think, is equally good for creating setting and world building just in a completely mm -hmm. different corner of the game universe. Yes. This one has that but then also has a lot more mechanics and a lot more but it, and it's also this is very much more player facing you could just yeah. hand this to yeah, yeah yeah well shadow court players but well but still or, or unseelie players i mean you know mm -hmm. and as someone who has played unseelie regularly i appreciate that same here groovy okay so i think that wraps up here you can find our website changelingthepodcast.com where we post every episode and also has links to other things there. You can patronize us. That's not the right word. <laughs> Become our patron at patreon.com slash changeling the podcast. A Facebook page for changeling the podcast. We also have a discord. Linked on the website. Yes, linked on the website. And in the show notes. And we have a Twitter. At changelingcast on Twitter. Yes. So yeah, I've been Josh. And I allegedly have been Puka. Yeah. And once again... All hail Discordia. Yeah. If you're going to kill someone at Samhain... You'll get away with it. You'll get away with it, but you won't remember it. So it might be more fun if you do it on another night. Well, Unless you're an instigator. I mean, depends on your definition of fun. Anyway. Yeah. Until next time, keep on dreaming. The process by which Unseelie Ishu and other dastardly fae find new recruits for the Shadow Court was formerly a lengthy one involving propaganda, tempting offers, counteroffers, counter-counteroffers, negotiations over tapas, coercion, more tapas, and swearing an oath not on a holy text but on a copy of 1954's The Alice B. Toklas Cookbook, opened to the recipe page for hashish fudge. When it became clear that the amount of labor in this process was unsustainable, Shadow Court instigators switched to slipping notes scribbled on cocktail napkins into prospective recruits' pockets, using taglines such as, Keep calm and ravage on, or I want you to consider eating your local baron. Here at Changeling the Podcast, we prefer to use less coercive, traumatic, or fattening methods to win support, one of which is to give a shout-out to our patrons at the end of each episode. To that end, extra special thanks to Roz Kabooz, Sandshaker, CJ, and Terry Robinson. If you'd also like to help bring down caffeine feudalism from the inside, or just help us keep bringing you content, please visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast to get a shout-out of your very own. You can also leave us a review on the platform you're listening to this episode, but in the anarchic spirit of the unsealy, you do you. It's your heart, your choice, your dreaming. See where the tries may take you.